Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to another interview in our series of Meet the Education Researcher podcast. My name is Neil Sowen and I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of these podcasts is simple. We spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what researchers in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by Jennifer Hall, lecturer in early years and primary numeracy. Good afternoon, Jennifer. Good afternoon. Now, I wanted to start by getting to grips with your broad area of research. I mean, in a nutshell, what is the field of mathematics education? So I look at a few different fields. Um, So my main love from, you know, way back, even when I was an undergrad, is gender issues in mathematics. I've always been really passionate about that. So I continually work in that field. Second to that, um, I'm also really interested in post-secondary mathematics, so people who are doing math degrees and what their experiences are like and so on. Why do they choose it? Why do they stick with it or not? And then my third area is numeracy, particularly looking at pre-service teachers' numeracy. Now, the way that you frame the kind of gender issue, you're kind of hinting, I guess, that gender issues, gender questions are not normally talked about in mathematics education. What are the main issues and themes that general mathematics education researchers tend to focus on? More commonly than the kind of things I do are the very classroom-based, you know, how should we teach adding fractions? You know, what are good pedagogies for X, Y, and Z? So very much about, you know, the curriculum and the teaching methods and so on. Whereas I look at things like more broadly, more experientially. And so what was it that kind of drew you towards the experiential aspect of mathematics education? What was it that kind of kind of pushed you in that direction? I think it's just looking at my own experiences. So as a woman who was a mathematics major, I had certain experiences even before I started my degree. And that really got me thinking about, you know, How do all of these non-academic factors contribute to what happens academically? I'm fascinated by how people's personal biography often informs their Mm. research. I mean, what was it about your experience as a woman doing math that pushed you into doing research, into women doing math? You always get reactions. It's never just like, oh, you're studying math. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It's like either A, oh, wow, you must be so smart. Or B, oh, that's interesting. There aren't a lot of women in math. You always get some reaction. It's never just a neutral. So I guess that was in the 2000s. Is that still an issue in the 2010s? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if you look at the stats uh, in Australia, in Canada, a lot of countries, the proportion of women in mathematics degrees has not got any better, even back to the 90s. Well, I was going to say that has been research done in this area for a Mm. long time. So what is it that we know about students' gender relationships with maths? Uh, What we do know about the gender relationships is that it's very persistent and it starts early. You know, even kids that are 7, 8, 9, 10, we start seeing not gender differences in ability or achievement, however you want to define those terms, but in confidence, where kids are thinking they're not as good at math, girls are not thinking they're as good at math as boys, and they don't like math as much as boys do already at a really young age. And why do we think that is? Why does research tell us that there is this kind of loss of confidence? Oh, there's so much with gender role modeling with parents and with teachers. I mean, if you look at studies by Baylock and her colleagues, it shows that if you have a math anxious teacher who is a woman, it strongly affects the little girls in the class, but not the little boys, mm. both in, in terms of confidence and achievement. So I mean, the flip side to what we know is what we think we can do about it. So, I mean, why, where is this research pushing education to change? Well, I think broadly for people of all genders, not just girls. And I think we have to be really careful that we're not making a deficit model there. Mm. Um, but for students of all genders, thinking about, well, how do we get kids in general interested in math and thinking math is cool and that math is a place for me? And that this is not just for somebody else, for the quote-unquote math people. And so there's a lot of work by 
Joe Bowler and Carol Dweck, you know, about the whole growth mindset theory. Because math, in a lot of people's views, is very black and white. It's right or wrong. It's not like, you know, understanding a poem, which is, you know, if we looked at math more broadly, it's not just black and white. There are more than one right answer. But if we get kids to see that there's a place for them in math, there's a place for autonomy and creativity in math, and you can do things lots of different ways, and that's okay, then people say, okay, well, I can try a different thing. I don't have to just do this one thing. So, I mean, there's lots of talk about the STEM pipeline and declining participation. I mean, how receptive are mathematics educators to making these changes in the classroom? That's a very broad question. I mean, some people are, some people aren't, obviously, just like with anything. But I think what really helps is particularly if you have a teacher or pre-service teacher who themselves struggled with math and didn't like it and felt badly about themselves because of their experiences learning mathematics, if they've had the opportunity to learn math in a way that they have a voice and they have creativity and they see that it's cool and it's fun and it's neat, that's what we want, then they're like, oh, there is a different way. It doesn't have to be this awful way that I experienced as a kid where I left hating math, feeling terrible about myself. You know, and they don't want to replicate that for kids. Is it down to individual teachers to change their practice or are there policy implications and kind of wider initiatives that we can introduce? Definitely. I think it's both. So, I mean, I think if you look at curricula, it is very supportive of those types of things, investigation and understanding, conceptual learning and so on and so forth. But as we know from the literature... There's a big gap between curriculum as intended and curriculum as implemented. So it's really providing the support to help people get from one to the other. Absolutely. Now, now I wanted to talk about your PhD. Okay. Mm, Societal views of mathematics and mathematicians and their influence on elementary students. That's quite a title. Mm. What was the research problem and what did you do? Okay. So with this, this was, it, again, it all came back to my own experiences and, you know, the things I saw in the media and in stores. And actually, the first line of my thesis is, it all began with a pair of pajama pants. <laughs> How did it begin with a pair of pajama pants? Well, I was in this woman's clothing store, shopping with my sister, and we get to the pajama section, and there's this pair of bright yellow pajama pants emblazoned with the phrase, I'm too pretty to do math. Really? All over them. When was this? Uh, 2007, 8. Good grief. And also, since I've looked into this further, there have been clothing for little girls with the same message, little pencil cases sold in lots of different countries. So anyways, I wrote to the company and expressed my displeasure. They never wrote back, even though I contacted them several times. But it's like, how is that? Okay, how did somebody at mm. that company and many somebodies think that this was an okay thing? And presumably they sold it and it was profitable. Yeah, yeah. right? So it's like, A, this I can never see this happening in a men's clothing store. Mm, I'm mm. too handsome to do math. Yeah, yeah. B, you would never say I'm too pretty to know how to read or to write. And C, it just wouldn't apply to any, like I can't imagine pants saying I'm too pretty to do history or study <laughs> psychology or, you know, and it's like, why are we even making this link between attractiveness and ability? So how did that take you to do empirical research into schools? What was the process? So that So there was that and there were like interactions with people at airports, just like complete strangers coming mm. up to me saying ridiculous things. And I was like, okay, I'm seeing this and I'm an adult with, you know, more fully formed opinions and knowledge and so on. How is this affecting kids? If they're seeing stuff like this in TV and they're seeing stuff on clothing and products, they might get a certain message at school, but they're also getting these other messages. Mm. You don't just learn about math in school, you learn about math in society. So that's where it took me of, okay, let's look at kids and see, you know, what are they seeing? What do they think? And even directly probing, okay, showing them a clip and then saying, okay, what do you think about this? So what do they tell you? Oh, all kinds of interesting things. Um, so basically what I did with the kids, A, they drew pictures of mathematicians mm -hmm. and they wrote a little uh, description of them. 
they did a survey with a variety of questions about math, their parents, gender, and so on. But also in the survey, what I did, which was unique, was that I asked them what their favorite three were for TV shows, video games, et cetera. Whereas previous research looking into math in the media, it was just, tell me a TV show that has math yeah, in it, yeah, yeah. right? Whereas I was saying, okay, tell me what you watch, and then I'm going to look at it and see what the math is. I'm interested in the, the draw a mathematician test. that I've heard of the draw a scientist mm. test, this idea of using drawing as a way of drawing out kind of people's feelings and attitude. I mean, how did that work in the thesis? Oh, it was great. I loved the drawings. I would sit and wait for the mail for the drawings to come in. And they were so fat. Like, it's just such a rich source of data. Yeah, yeah. Like, I got so much more out of that than the questionnaires. You know, even though there were open-ended questions and, like, you know, lots of different topics. So what I found really interesting with this, A, encouragingly, there weren't many, quote-unquote, stereotypical nerds with the pocket protector and the glasses and the high pants and all that. Um, And the majority of the drawings really were in two categories. So either you're, again, quote-unquote, professional mathematician, you know, for lack of a better term, so in an office doing math. And then the other half, you know, of the large portion were teachers. Right, okay. And that I found really encouraging because some of them actually said, this is Mrs. So-and-so, my grade four teacher. And like, that's great to me. They're seeing them as a mathematician. Whereas some other researchers say, oh no, kids just don't know what a mathematician is. And I'm like, well, I think the reverse. I think that's great. If you think your grade four generalist teacher is a mathematician, that's awesome. That's a really good message that's yeah, coming yeah, across. Yeah, yeah, So the role modeling kind of, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, exactly. Looking back mm-hmm. on the PhD as well, I mean, is there anything that you might do differently? I would make it smaller. <laughs> <laughs> I started and it got gigantic. Yeah, my thesis is 500 pages. So I guess your advice to PhD students now is to kind of, you know, it's quality rather than quantity. Yeah, and the thing was, for instance, I was thinking I would get about 50 drawings that I thought would be a good sample size because they also had the write-up. Plus I had... I did focus groups, I had, you know, the questionnaires, I did interviews with parents and teachers, I analyzed the media, right? It was like a ton of data. But you never know what your response rate's going to be. So all of a sudden, I had 96 drawings and I was like, whoa, (laughs) okay, we have twice the sample size, so. I mean, I I use the same approach, building blocks. So if one thing goes wrong, you've got five other things to go right. The trouble is, if it all goes right, you've got a heap of data. I'm really interested in terms of those methods. I mean, are you wedded to a particular approach when you use methods now or have you kind of, are you quite diverse and and loose in the way that you approach methods? No, I'm very diverse. Like I'll do quant, I'll do qual, I'll do a mix. I'll do some kind of interesting qual stuff. So like doing drawings and doing stuff with media. And even just with analysis, uh, recently I've worked on an article looking at the use of iPoems and the listening guide as oh, an yeah, analysis yeah. method. So that I really enjoyed. Yeah, you've got to keep yourself interested, haven't you? Mm-hmm. I'm always interested in what people are doing at the moment. That's what you did in the past. I mean, what right. are you currently writing? How's it going? Yeah, so I'm working, I've recently been working on conference papers and I just submitted two um, journal articles that I wrote with my supervisor from my master's and my PhD which is good because I literally defended on October 28th and I started my postdoc November 1st. Wow. And I had to like make the, you know, corrections between there. So, I mean, it was just kind of like I didn't even have time to deal with my PhD because I was right into the postdoc. So you've actually had to come back to stuff that you may mm-hmm. have done in 2013, 2014. Yeah. So are you having, uh, not trouble, but I mean, how are you kind of now making it relevant to 2018? Are you having to kind of update stuff or do you find it kind of it's kept its shelf life? Yeah, I think it really has kept it. I mean, obviously updating literature and that kind of thing, but it's an area that there's not much in. Yeah, yeah. 
And honestly, I don't think society has progressed that much in five years, let's be honest. <laughs> That's true. So the flip side of writing is reading. And I'm always wondering what you're reading at the moment. I mean, kind of what, what are you reading and what ideas are being sparked? I kind of, honestly, sadly, at the moment, I read out of necessity. Yeah. I yeah. read for what I need for what I'm writing. I think you go through phases of, as you yeah. say, kind of smash and grab reading where you're just reading to a writing and then there's the yeah. slower. But can you remember the last thing that you read in a kind of more slow, leisurely, generative way? Yeah. What I most recently read academic related two books actually by Helen Sword and she it's all about academic writing okay the books are they're very you know reader friendly you can mm. lie in bed and read them they're not you know thick prose but it's just really smart simple things to make your writing better like make sure the subject and the verb don't have a thousand words between them <laughs> it's like oh yeah of course but you know until you see it in print you're like oh yeah I do that sometimes yeah, yeah. you know and so she, what she did was research with highly prolific academic and other authors that were highly successful at won awards and so on and, you know, published out the yin-yang and looked at what are their processes? What do they do? How do they read? Who do they talk to? Are they working by themselves? Do they do in little bits? Do they sit down for hours? And so that was really interesting to see what these very yeah, prolific so people are doing. Kind of seven tips from highly successful people. Yeah, so, I mean, was, much. <laughs> was there anything from that that you gleaned? Um, in terms of like strategies for writing, not really, because I found what I'm doing now is working really well. Ah, right. Like last year, I pumped out 11 articles. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that just having to, having to sit and do it because otherwise you're like, oh, I'll just do this thing for teaching. Oh, I'll just do, you know. Mm. Deal with emails and the next thing you know, three hours are gone. Exactly. So you are one of these highly successful people. <laughs> yeah, I don't know yet. <laughs> Hopefully so, one day. <laughs> so where are you going next? I mean, are there any areas or issues or topics that you've got bubbling up in the back of your mind? Anything cooking over the next five years? Yes. What I want to do research in, because I'm interested in gender and I'm interested in pushing the boundaries because... Gender research and math education is highly, highly binary binaried mm. in nature. And I started grappling with this really during my PhD of how am I going to group people? How am I going to word things? You know, and how do I balance my theoretical stance with pragmatically what I'm doing with these kids in this study? And the study's not really focused on gender, you know, and trying to balance all that. And so going forward, what I've really been focusing on is doing things in a non-binary way. And I've done a small study about that and looking at people's views of math and gender in a non-binary way. So what I'm wanting to do in the future is do research with transgender individuals yeah, yeah, yeah. and look at what their experiences are like as they've changed their gender and the manner in which people interact with them in a gendered way. How does that impact their mathematics identity and the way that people interact with them mathematically? That's fascinating. Yeah. I did a first piece of research last year where we had non-binary subjects in the sample and that was in kind of grade seven, grade eight, mm. I think. So there's more and more students now that yeah, are identifying. Say, it's far more fluid. So it's, it's going to be such a big issue in the future. You're, you're ahead of the curve. Now, I mean, finally, in Australian terms, at least, you're just coming out of five years of being an ECR, an early career researcher. And, I mean, there's still a lot of great things about working in academia, but it is an increasingly precarious business. I mean, why are you doing this? What keeps you, what gets you out of bed every day? What do you love being about being an academic? I like to think and I like to debate and I love to teach and I just want people to love math. And if I go to my grave and I've made some more people like math and appreciate math, I have done my job. Excellent. Very, very laudable. Very laudable. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to talk. It's been really good to hear about your work. Good luck with it all. Great. Thank you.